0: Hey, this is Andre Gower from the Monster Squad and Wolfman's Got Nards, the documentary, and you're listening to Spoiler Country.
1: time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal of the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John, and Kenrick, and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country.
2: Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. Right.
1: Of the Republic
2: of Ooh, Welcome back <laughs> <laughs> to Spoiler Country. There's that mid-transformation there. <laughs> that was my Captain Cave. K- Captain Cave! K- Man! No. Uh, today is super special because one of my favorite movies as a kid was Monster Squad. Monster oh, Squad's a good movie. Monster Squad. Wolfman's got nards. Uh, Wolfman's
3: got Nards, man.
2: Yeah, it's a it is it's a real it's a really fun movie. Uh, if you haven't watched it and you're a child of the '80s, I definitely suggest you go get it and and check it out because you'll love it. But today
3: we have Andre Gower, don't we? We do. Andre Gower talking about his uh, the new documentary Wolfman's Got Nards, you know the famous phrase there. And yep. uh, Jeff sat down and talked to them about Monster Squad and the new documentary and and, and a lot more.
2: Cool. Well. I don't think we can do this any more justice than just get into it, right? Let's do it. Let's do this.
3: Hello,
1: listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Mr. Andre Gower. How's it going, Mr. Gower? Uh, It's going pretty good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure. I'm a huge fan of yours. I grew up on watching Monster Squad. I was a you know young fan going. So I'm geeking out just a little bit. So you gotta bear with me. Uh, that's but I'm okay. A-
0: <laughs> we allow that. We allow that totally.
1: Uh, you must be very talented. I I, I I wager a lot of people geek out talking to you. You know it happens. It happens sometimes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing right now in the world?
0: You know, all things considered, I'm doing pretty good. You know, you know, got a you know, good place to stay, you know, got good places to go, you know, in a safe manner, you know, masked up and socially distanced when you can, (laughs) you know, it is a crazy year and a crazy time. But like I said, all things considered, I'm doing pretty darn good. You know, I'm celebrating the release, you know, finally of this documentary that's coming out with our distribution partner, Gravitas Ventures. And, you know, we only got a few days, you know, it's October 27th, very soon. So that's a big day for us. So we're very excited.
1: And it's a fantastic documentary. Now, I know, like I said, you, I imagine you've been going on tours different to promote this documentary. Now, because of COVID, has that become increasingly difficult or have you been able to still do what your original plan was to promote it?
0: No, it's, you know, it's kind of been hamstrung a little bit by by a number of things. One, obviously, because of, you know, COVID and the situation, you know, travel is kind of restricted. But one thing that really kind of uh, hurt is a lot of the physical locations you know, that wanted to, you know, do a screening on opening weekend or during Halloween, you know, just can't do them, you know, either they're not open or it's not financially feasible to have some big special event and, you know, fly out, you know, myself or Henry McComas or Ryan Lambert or something like that to be special guests. So we're missing that little kind of cool window, but I think, you know, I think we're still, I think we're still in a good spot and fans will you know, get a kick out of the VOD release and the Blu-ray release on the 27th. And look, you know, down the line when everything opens back up and the world starts turning, you know, I'd be glad to jump in the car or jump on a plane and go hang <laughs> out with somebody. Well, like I
1: said, I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. And like I said, I, I, it's unfortunate the timing of things with COVID has just been difficult for a lot of people in a lot of ways. Being that you, you be, you've been in the industry for, God, it's been 40 years. I mean, since you're five years old, you've been in the industry. I, yeah. I mean, that is absolutely stunning. What, how, what is it, how do you feel when you look back and think, I've been doing this for, I guess it's been over 40 years. You've been, since you're five years old.
0: <laughs> yeah. for you know, I've been doing this for most of my life or, you know, you've been at least involved or, you know, connected in some way. You know, starting out very young, it was, it was something, I, I guess, kind of natural that was going to happen. My sister is a little bit older than I am and she, she started the business before I did and i was always around it she worked quite a bit in the you know 70s and early 80s and you know she did quite a few things back then so i was always sort of around it and then it was just sort of a natural thing that i guess i was interested in it or i got put into it and you know, instead of sinking, I swam a little bit, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I guess it was something that was just going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and, <laughs> and I, I, then, you know, and that happens with kids. You know, it's not you're not really making those decisions really. But you know, I always felt like I was a part of it. If I wasn't happy, I didn't have to do something. So that was always cool. And that was not always the case with all you know a lot of the kids that I grew up with in the business. You know, so my parents were very cognizant of that. And you know, I never did anything that I was uncomfortable with, and you know, didn't want to do or you know, and but. But I was really kind of, I was like a a duck in water, so to speak, you know, and whether sinking and swimming, you know, I I started swimming and, you know, just kind of went with something that was very unique, you know, being born and raised in LA, you're kind of closer to it. So it wasn't like this uprooting type of thing and moving the family from, you know, Omaha or something and and then plopping in LA, you know, as, you know, foreigners in a foreign land, it was always just sort of part of you. And, you know, my sister being ahead of me in that scope, you know, kind of, you know greased the skids a little bit i guess and you know it was just fun you know i never saw it as a a, di- a distraction or a detraction from my growing up years and my teenage years i saw it as a a completely unique value add that i got to do some stuff that 99.9% of the kids don't get to do
1: yeah and i mean your resume prior to playing Sean in, in monster squad you have a very cool resume you were in the a-team in episodes of the a-team you're an episode of tj hooker you start off in young and the restless i mean you must have come in contact with some really i mean you must have that's william shatner mr t i mean you must have been some really impressive people you come in contact with early hey, you on you know in I have.
0: you know not only just meeting them but actually getting to work with you know you know a barrel full of you know some of the most iconic people on screen be it small screen or big screen and you know i was we had mentioned in another podcast, you know, a year or two ago that they were going down that list of guest spots and you know, someone's like, you honestly have like the best roster of TV <laughs> dads of anybody ever. And I was like, really? I was like, oh, I guess maybe I do. You know, because it, it started off, you know, with you know, people like Bert Convey and, you know, Richard Mazer. And, you know, then it goes to like, you know, the iconic Ricky Nelson and Shatner. And George C. Scott, I mean, this is, those are incredible names, you know, to get to, you know, be the younger offspring of these icons. So I I guess I do have a pretty bitchin' dad (laughs)
1: roster. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and, and when you're that young, did you realize who these people were that you were acting against? Or is there something to be said about being that young that you doesn't, hasn't registered that? Oh my God, that's William Shatner. Oh my God, that's George C. Scott. Oh my God, you know, or,
0: you know? I I guess it depends on the precise age. You know, when I didn't know who Burt Convy was, you know, I didn't know he was, you know, the iconic host of Super Password. Otherwise, I would have made a joke when we were doing a scene. I would have done my lines like, really? (laughs) (laughs) low. But, you know, later on, you grow up and go, oh, there's Burt Convy. But, you know, when you're getting in, I, I knew it was special with, you know, I did a TV show on NBC called Fathers and Sons. And it was sort of an ensemble boys show about boys and their dads. And so I thought it was a really unique show at the time, and even in you know in retrospect, uh, a little ahead of its time, you know, because we hadn't seen any seen anything really like that. And it was four main kids, and they're all boys of you know different types. And it was about them and their relationship with each other and then their relationship with their dads and as sort of like that group. And we've seen some iterations of that in the last you know, couple of decades, but I thought that was a really good idea. And unfortunately, what happened with that show, it was a show created and executive produced by uh, big TV names like uh, Michael Zinberg and Randy Zisk. And the I got to play the cool character with the good hair and the awesome clothes. And uh, yeah. my dad... The relationship story was my parents were divorced and my dad was sort of like that uh, skirt chaser and that playboy you know kind of uh, party guy and it was ricky nelson who was returning to television after you know 40 years or something or 45 years and he was a you know he's an americana icon you know not just in music but on television and he was returning to television so this is a big deal and we shot the pilot it airs, the show gets picked up to do like five or six more episodes. Back in the day, there's a thing called mid season replacements. And so you jump in the middle of a season and, and kind of get a warm up. And unfortunately, he died in the plane crash, you know, in between that. Yeah. And so the series kind of, you know, suffered without this gigantic name in it. But the other gigantic yeah. name was Merlin Olsen coming right off of Little House in the Prairie and Father Murphy. So I just don't, I I think that, you know, was an unfortunate hit, but you obviously know who Ricky Nelson is and I got to do, you know, an episode with him and, you know, I have that forever. Unfortunately, he, you know, died in a plane crash, you know, a few months after that, but, you know, going into like something like Shatner and TJ Hooker, I actually played TJ Hooker's son. And so, you know, it was a, the series that started to bringing the kids into the storyline and you know, obviously, you know who William Shatner is, you know, because oh, up yes. to them, he's it's, it's Captain Kirk, damn it. You know, he was, you know, super nice, you know, talented actor, you know, everybody only knows him as, uh, you know. Captain Kirk and maybe you've seen one episode of The Twilight Zone, you know, yep, where there's yep. something on the wing. But, um, you know, he was a great guy. And it was interesting to do that show with, you know, Zmed and, of course, Heather Locklear. I mean, who wouldn't want to do a TV show with Heather Locklear? Right, Especially right. when you're like, you know, 11 or 12. But, you know, and then going into something, I did a show called Mr. President with George C. Scott who was also coming to television for the first time ever. And it was this giant show and it was one of the original shows on the Fox network. And that was an experience. And, you know, being around him every day and Conrad Bain and Madeline Kahn, and all these iconic television people, you know, listening to to stories and, and learning things or trying to learn things. And when you don't learn things, you get yelled at by George C. Scott, which uh, leaves a mark. And, you know, but it imprints and you don't forget it. <laughs> but, you know, those were yeah, you look back at stuff like that. And, you know, I always joke, you know, when we're talking about all these awesome, you know, you know, guest spots and series, I, my television kind of career as a kid, I was that kid that did like five or six shows for one season. Instead of one show that went six years that everybody knows and it goes into syndication and it's like this thing,
1: right, and right,
0: right. so I always lament that a little bit. Except for when I think about that, I got to experience more, you know, than the inverse of that. So, you know, it's it, it's just about your the cumulative effect and the value of all your experiences when you look back at it. And it's pretty rad.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure everyone knows that. By the time you were in the Monster Squad, you were already a seasoned actor. You've already mm. been through, in many ways, acting college through all the different shows and actors you've experienced. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I haven't had an opportunity. I didn't look through a lot of the other kid actors from Monster Squad and some of their back uh, stories before this episode. I mean, I you know, obviously looked at yours. I looked at Ryan a little bit, because I'm going to be interviewing him in a couple of weeks. Right. And did were you the more seasoned
0: actor of that group from monster squad. You know, I would, you know, without trying to be selfish, I I think I was just off of, you know, line by line work experience. I know, you know, Robbie Kiger and I had grown up together, you know, from a young age and knew each other and he worked quite a bit. He was in, you know, he was in, you know, a handful of films and he was on a TV show. uh, uh, Scarecrow and Mr. uh, Mrs. King, I think. And so he did a lot of television work And a couple of films, and he was in Children of the Corn before we did Monster Squad. And so probably me and Robbie and then Ryan had just joined Kids Incorporated, which was his first thing. And so he was still fairly new, but very good. And, you know, knew how to perform and knew how to bring it. And boy, he sure rocked it as Rudy, didn't he? So, (laughs) uh, you know, we always got to celebrate, you know, each other when we can. And I think everybody... Because you know, ironically, Ashley Bank, who was only five at the time, she had actually worked quite a bit leading up to Monster <laughs> Squad and then worked a ton after. So, you know, it was an interesting kind of mix. But I would say, yeah, probably on paper, I, I had worked m- more than the others. Now, when you played Sean, you were 14 years old. Is that correct? I When we shot it, I was uh, 13, I believe. And it came out when I was 14, yeah.
1: So the character is supposed to be in sixth grade elementary school because he's pre-junior high because he mentioned ryan is a junior high kid well right and it was that unusual for you because you're playing in some ways a younger much younger kid i mean 13 and like i guess 10 is quite a age difference
0: yeah, well, you know, I was in seventh grade when we shot it, so it wasn't too far off. Yeah, you know, you know when you're a kid, you never want to play someone younger, because that's lame. You're like, I want to be, I want to be older, or at least my right, age, right, right. you know, because, you know, I'm 13 and a half. But no, it it, it wasn't. You just got to, you know, it is what it is, and you just roll with it. And, you know, our school age kind of stuff had, you know, you know a big impact in the feel and the kind of tone of the movie.
1: And I must say, someone... I was a, a huge fan of Monster and I still am of Monster Squad since I, I, I think I saw it maybe not when it first came out when I was seven but definitely by what time I was eight because when it came out I was seven years old and I remember loving this movie a lot. My father used to own a video store. He owned Video King. I uh, was named oh, this, yeah. his store and uh, he would bring home. We could rent whenever we wanted because he owned the, <laughs> the store so owns, we rented yeah. Monster Squad all the time. And when the store eventually closed, it closed in the late 80s when he kept a few of the videos. He sold most of them. But he kept, We were able to pick a few that we got to keep. Monster Squad VHS was one of the few I was able to keep. And it's like, no, we're, I'm holding on to this one forever. And I thought in many ways, it, because of not only when it came out, but the age of the kids seemed to be almost more important than almost anything else. They were kids right at that moment of being young adults. And I think that was almost a big impact of of the movie and i think do you think that was as important that they weren't all junior high or moving up into that older group they kept them like in elementary school as
0: part of the storyline well i think it i think that was an you know an unintentional kind of positive consequence it also led to ironically one of the reasons that the movie failed in the box office you know, for a number of reasons. But I, I think the success of the characters that resonated with the kids that watched it, whether they saw it in the theater, which was very few, or when they, you know, recorded off HBO or got it from their local video store, like King Video, um, the, you know, the, the, the ability to relate to one or more of the characters and say, hey, that's me. That's I feel that way, or I look that way, or I sound that way, and I could be friends with them, or I want them to be friends with me. And you know, I'm going to go create my own little you know clubhouse, or my tree, you know, build a treehouse, or make my you know the garage or the shed in the backyard. And we're going to team up and talk about the the stuff that me and my friends like, no matter what it is. And you know, that age, that age, especially at that time, was kind of the boy. Now, you know, thirteen, you know, twelve, thirteen is the new sixteen. Yeah. Uh, but back then twelve thirteen was, you know, kind of like a traditional 13, but we were in a different world. We had, you know, technology in the eighties, we had programming, we had TV and movies and, you know, the beginning of, you know, beginnings of like cable television and all this technology, like a VHS machine and camcorders and Walkmans. And, you know, you could go on adventures and you could, you know, you could create things better than just bringing your hula hoop and your bike. And and of course, bikes were a big part of that era, right? I, I grew up on my dirt bike, you know, and because you got to go places, and meant you were mobile, and you could go somewhere and you were free. And, you know, even if you only went to the edge of your cul-de-sac, that was a far, that was a long way, depending on how right. age, you know, what age you were. <laughs> and, you know, those things you think back, and those are amazing type of memories. And I, I mean, I remember the first time I rode to the end of one of my blocks by myself, I was Shitless, you know, like, yeah. oh my God, I'm so far. And, uh, but then you come back and then you do cool stuff that you see in the movies. And, uh, and then you make those movies when you're riding your bike doing cool yeah. stuff, like uh, Monster Squad and like E.T. and all that, you know, it's awesome. But I, I think that age range was important because those kids were like, hey, I'm, I don't know what's happening to me, but I'm getting into a certain age. And, you know, I'm meeting people and I'm going to a different school, maybe next year, or I just got to a new school and it's bigger and 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 scarier or weirder. And, but it's exciting and it's fascinating. And, you know, I think just kind of that kind of, you know, crosses all those kind of, you know, kind of boxes of, you know, experiences of that age. And I think Monsters Wild just kind of wove wide in there with, you know, the the, the different characters and, you know, Tied him in with the younger kids and, you know, tied him on the other end with Rudy being a little bit older and everybody found someone they could relate with.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing I, I love, um, I think about the idea of that age group is that at that age, you still have that sense of wonder, that mystery. You can really think at elementary school, there are monsters out there. There could be Dracula and Wolfman and all these characters. You don't, and you're not cynical. You have that possibility and that imagination to get there. I think it would have lost something if they were in high school when it would have been like, No, it doesn't make sense that I heard my father talk about a mummy that it would be really alive. It just wouldn't make sense to a high school kid to to make that leap. I think that age group was important, I think, to make the movie work.
0: Well, it was. And I think, you know, the other side of that is a more kind of narrower, not in a bad way, but a narrower story with older kids that are on like, you, you know, then you have the Lost Boys. Right, which right. was a fun movie, you know, at the time, which killed us in the box office, but not the same demographic. Really, it kind of siphoned off our older teenagers and cool kids that might have seen Monster Squad, but they weren't going to go because it was, you know, it was a kids' movie. But I think the I, I just lost a good thought there. But y- you know, I think that error, you know, came across, and I think the original story of what the Monster Squad idea was from fred decker's mind was what would happen if the little rascals fought the universal monsters and the little rascals were this kind of potpourri group of kids from the neighborhood you know our gang then went and met up in a shed and then went on adventures in their neighborhood and uh, you know went on adventures solved crimes you know made crime you know committed crimes you know know, (laughs) crazy stuff (laughs) but you know there's a wide range it wasn't just kind of you know like one set you know, of high schoolers or college, you know, because we have those movies. We got the high school movies, You got the college movies and you got the summer camp movies, you know, where you don't go in the woods because you're going to die. Yeah. And, you know, this was just a little something different. It was a throwback to a, you know, a classic time in a modern era. And it was kind of a neat juxt- juxtaposition.
1: And it's interesting that when it came out in 1987, it got the PG-13 rating which was a relatively new rating at the time. If it had come out, if, in some ways, if it had come out like a year or two earlier before PG-13, it probably as PG, I imagine, would have had that greater success. But the part... You
0: know, I, I, I don't disagree. Continue. <laughs>
1: uh, and I, But I, I, at the same time, I was thinking from my own perspective... Since I did love Monster Squad, came out to me. It never, it always felt like it was a huge success, I guess, on some level. You know, like I remember growing up and talking to kids and be like, Monster Squad, they love it. I love it. My sister loved it. My parent, my father loved it. It never seemed like a, a movie that did not exist, which I thought was kind of interesting. In your documentary, we were talking about how it seemed to have disappeared for, I guess, it was almost 20 years. I'm like, to me, it never did. <laughs> I never
0: understood and, that. Yeah, your part, you and your sister and, you know, your friends, you know, that at your dad's video store that got to see it and liked it you're, it used to be this like 50, 50 group, you either know it and you like it, or you've never heard of it. And, you know, that's kind of a crossover a little bit now after the last 10 or, 10 or 12 years. But yeah, it was, it was really this weird thing. And there's a ton of stories like, and you know, we, we cover, you know, a couple of the people mentioned anecdotally that very same thing in the documentary that I never thought it was, I never knew it was a a, a box office failure. I just thought it was a giant movie that I loved and it was awesome. Right, I didn't know that it disappeared. I didn't know those things when I was 12. And then, you know, I just was mad when I was in college and I couldn't find it because I couldn't, you know, my old Max L tape with a piece of masking tape on it says HBO stuff on it. right? You know, I couldn't find in my attic and, you know, I had my old worn out King video VHS box, <laughs> you know, that, you know, and the tape breaks and it's got scotch tape on it five times or something. So, which never really works as well as you think it does, but it. That's an interesting part of the story, and the the rating had a lot to do with it. You know, not only was it that you know the age of the characters that kept the older teenagers away because they didn't want to go see a kids movie, which they didn't realize this was actually a dark, dangerous movie where people are dying. They might have they might have dug it, and then the younger kids were not going to go or be able to go to a PG thirteen movie, because mostly the parents were going to go take them on the you know Saturday afternoon and go with them. watch this kids movie they want to drop their kids off and go shopping while the kids are stuck in the movie theater and that's what happened back then and i think it suffered a little bit from that rating i think it also suffered a little bit from a mixed marketing campaign Mm -hmm. which kind of when i say mixed it was contradictory to itself sometimes i think (laughs) if you look back at it and if you look at it today you know we covered a little bit in the month in the in wolfman's got narns yeah it's not good (laughs) No, (laughs) Uh, you know it kind of had these different you know some of the advertisements came off as campy and kid-like and so cool kids are not going to go see a campy kids movie and then uh, you know the trailer was dark and scary and the poster was kind of ominous and parents are like my kid my 10 year old's not going to go see that and so i always joke you know it's interesting that they you know we siphoned off you know some of the reviews and the campiness of the advertisements uh the older Teenagers, Or the mid and older teenagers. And then the younger kids, the 8, 9, 10, 11s, were not going to be able to go for the rating and or their parents or they just, you know, too scared. And so we kind of had that very small window, which we now know is called a tween. Yeah. And no one knew that back then. And so I always joke when I'm in a crowd and I get a, a, a pretty good guffaw from a group. You know, I say it's like, had, you know, a studio known then at the time, you know, did we make the first tween movie ever? I don't know. <laughs> and had you marketed it such, you know, it would have been so successful that we would have, you know, just got done shooting Monster Squad 9 Breaking Dawn. <laughs> yeah. and So I don't know.
1: <laughs> I mean it's kind of a, such a weird contradiction in some in the in the way that when you look back at the movie when it came out it was um viewed by some maybe because of the marketing as being too kid like yeah. however when you look at movies today that movie could never be made the way it was because it was considered too dark and <laughs> grim for the kid audience so it's like right. it's just it's a weird gap that like gets happened in 20 years where that movie both is was too kid-like for an audience thought back then, and way too dark and grim and violent for the audiences today. For that, for the young audience today,
0: you are absolutely correct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it. Well, and I think one of the other things that made it fantastic too is that it had the, some wonderful special effects from from Stan Winston, yeah. and it predated the CG aspect, which and something to be said about. I think the the real special effects or uh, practical effects. I think they call them now the, the non CG mm-hmm. effects, practical. How did that as a young actor seeing the Wolfman the way it was done and the, the black lagoon, uh, see a creature and obviously Duncan uh, Ryger's count Dracula. How, I mean, were they, did they look terrifying in person at just as
0: much as they did on TV? I mean, even more so because they were real and they were very lifelike. The, the creature builds on that were one of a kind, modern and cutting edge and literally changed the game. You know, when you, if you're talking about Gilman, you know, everybody at Stan Winston, you know, the, all these young guys that were new creature makers got paired off and assigned one of the monsters and a young artist named Steve Wang and Matt Rose got to make Gilman and he came up, they came up with an innovative way. That was kind of a gamble. That is a one piece latex rubber suit. And once you're in it, you get glued in it. The head and the hands and the feet, you're actually glued in. You can't get out. There's no way out. And the paint scheme was amazing. There's a whole backstory that Steve has of how he came up with that and convinced Stan to you know, paint Gilman in, in this fashion. And then you know that led to other great stuff where you see, I don't know, things like Predator. Yeah. Where they're very seen a similar paint scheme made by the same people, which is awesome. Right. And, but no, the practical effects, watching them work on that stuff and seeing the guys in the suits – Uh, it was fascinating, a lot of, probably the hardest work on set. And then when you get to something like Tom Noonan, his Frankenstein's monster wearing, you know, two and a half, three hours of makeup application and two hours of taking it off every day. I mean, that is, you know, and Duncan being in, you know, Dracula makeup, you know, it's at least an hour and a half a day to get it on and you know those it was fascinating to see the artistry and the professionalism of these people you know it's always you know the joke that you know Duncan and Tom are very qualified and 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 very trained method actors and they were the care we never saw them out of costume or out wow. of character for the entire shoot and you know even in between takes they never broke and we never hung out with them at lunchtime or anything like that so you know to you know little Phoebe, Ashley bank and Michael I mean, These were, these were just creatures walking around and uh, yeah, we know there are guys in them, but we don't know those guys. We know these characters. And it was, you know, I was joked that I never saw what Tom, I was after a month of shooting. I was like, who is this guy? And I was like, <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? He's got a movie out right now that I can rent at my local video store, which was videos to go in Porter ranch. Yeah. I, I went and rented manhunter and then just to see what this guy looked like. And then I wish I hadn't, because he scared the shit out of me in that movie. he's absolutely terrifying, (laughs) as Francis Dolaride. (laughs) so so he's a fantastic actor.
1: Yeah, so you guys were siphoned off, like the kids hung together, I imagine, as as like a clique. And the uh, monsters, actors hung around as like their own clique. You never interacted with one another? That's actually fascinating. I figured you guys would have interacted.
0: We interacted a little bit with Michael McKay, who was uh, in The Mummy uh, out, uh, costume. We, we actually had to, uh, feed him sometimes cause he couldn't eat with his cause he had this big, like half fake face. And like, he had to got a little, a yeah, yeah. You know, little Salisbury steak from the catering truck in, in a corner there or feed him a soda through some straw. I think, you know, Michael Faustino did that a bunch and uh, no, we, we didn't hang out with Duncan. We didn't hang out with Tom. Carl Tybalt is actually the name of the guy that was in the Wolfman suit once John Grease you know transformed and then it switched but not really much around them because they they did a lot of that creature work after we were gone and later in the day and late at night when we weren't around but I got to hang around after hours and 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 see them work and it's uh, it was it's a lot of work I mean, to be in, to be the creature in the creature suit is a lot of hard work
1: so I was going to ask you, like, what did you learn as an actor from them? Especially also, uh, Stephen, I'm going to probably get the last name wrong, Max? Am I going to say uh, the name? Stephen
0: Mock. Yeah, Stephen Mock. Sorry. Yeah.
1: So, like, what kind of lessons about acting? What did you learn about your craft from watching him act? And also, I guess, we, Stan Shaw as well.
0: Yeah, you know, and I didn't really know Stan because I didn't have a scene with Stan. Although he'd been in, you know, a ton of stuff you know, growing up and, you know, he ended up being in the movie adaptation of one of, you know, my one of my favorite author's books, you know, the great Santini, he plays tumor in the great Santini and, you know, he worked, you know, for decades before we did monster squad and he's fantastic. And he's got such a great face and a great, you know, charisma. I'm just, you know, mad that he wasn't in more than he gets blowed up, but Stephen, you know, is really like a serious trained, new york native and has just that grab it you know, has that gravity you know when when you're in with them and I, you know i really like the scene with sean and dell in the bathroom i think that's a good father-son scene and you know they're dealing with a bunch of stuff there's a lot of stuff going on in monster squad and one of them's like a you know a family falling apart and yeah. uh you know while the world's about to be taken over and by evil forces and you know it's a staying and it's, i want to go see a movie and that shaving marriage counselor and lawyers and therapy or you know whatever and it's and then he comes out on the after a weird night uh, you know on the job and then comes back and watches a movie on the rooftop with me and you know that's i, I always thought that was probably some pretty cool stuff in the movie and steven just kind of he didn't even really have to say anything he's got a, he's got great looks and he can say a lot with just you know the way he shakes his head or something
1: yeah, that scene on the roof when you're watching—I can't remember, remember the name of the hard flick that you guys were supposed to be watching there in that moment. But uh, it was—it was like an eighth or ninth.
0: Groundhog Day Part Twelve. Gotcha. Yes.
1: <laughs> and and but I thought that scene was so such a quiet scene, but such a powerful scene of the father and son on the roof. You know, the father's come back from working. There's obviously we know there's some been some issues, um, especially with him, the father and the wife having left. That I mean, how did you? I mean, when you're in that scene. You must have felt like you were talking to your father that month, because it just felt like as a viewer that you really seemed like a father son talk. you know, it didn't feel like acting.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, we can add Stephen Mock as you know another you know list of my roster of cool dads on screen, right? the I, I think what was really cool is because you always have dads on camera normally when you're working. and so I've, I've had this roster, and then now you know we have Stephen. But Stephen was a dad. You know, he had two young sons at that, at that time and one, I think his middle son, I think was probably five or six at the time. But then like Gabriel is a year or two older than I am. And now, you know, he's a big famous actor and they were on set. And so he had, you know, like an eight or nine year old and like a five and six year old at the time. And so he knew it just he just was the dad. But then he was creating this character. That was this problem. So, I mean, he was a dad, so he wasn't faking it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the, the amount of actors you were surrounded by is amazing, and the, some of the stuff you guys handled were so heavy. Like, this, your scenes with Leonardo
0: Semino, am I mm-hmm. probably saying the name wrong, who's... Oh, he's a, what a fabulous character actor, right? I mean, just one of those iconic faces and voices, and he's been in a ton of stuff.
1: The, he was a Holocaust survivor. They subtly hint at it. To those who may not know the history, you may not you might have missed the numbers, but it's definitely there. Yeah. When you were... In those scenes, did you get that reference of who he was prior to being scary German guy?
0: Yes, because I was old enough to know the history and know that and know what the tattoo means, you know, and seen movies and TV shows and read books. You know, even when we're reading the script, you know, we get this, you know, we get that exposition in there. But yeah, I mean, it's his play, his house. If you look around his house and he was filled with, you know, European, Jewish and World War II kind of iconography, you know, and we even touch on it. There's a model airplane and then there's a menorah and then, you know, it's like, oh, okay, this guy is, you know, he's been through something and he's the, you know, he's the scary guy that lives at the end of the block that no one messes with. But you know what? You you should probably befriend that guy because you may learn something.
1: How, how did that impact you as an actor knowing his backstory in that scene? Did it add, to me as a viewer, it, it added an extra level of power to that scene, but you haven't gone back and watched the scene again knowing you know, after having seen the tattoo um, reveal as an yeah. actor, like, did it just bring you to the, like an extra level knowing that background?
0: I think what it was setting up, you know, that this is just another uh, member of the squad that is going to be powerful and, you know, and, and knows what he's talking about. And I, I think his kind of, you know, you know, impetus to jump in with these kids. Once he finds out what's going on is, Hey, I've, been through hell. I don't want it to happen again. And I'm going to do my part to help them out because I'm the only adult that kind of believes what they're doing because I've been through something similar. And so I think he felt he was, you know, had a duty to, uh, you know, and the courage obviously to step up and say not again, or, you you know, some sort of symbolism like that.
1: Yeah and and I think the other thing I loved about um watching the monster squad is that in a lot of these kids movies the whole idea is that the adults never believe them at all but you do have a character like um the scary german guy who does trust the kids the kids or on some level handled like adults on, you know, as someone who you can trust and their words are taken as serious. I mean, even the army shows up, with the kid sends his letter in the crayon. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right. right. I th- yeah. I think, I, I think that shows a little bit of, you know, what Shane and Fred were, you know, kind of saying, you know, in the story, you know, as writing, you know, through the script, you know, but the base of the story is, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different people out here going through a lot of different stuff. And like I said, my favorite thing is, you know, that's the weird house that the the landscaping's all distraught and it's scary. So you shouldn't go in there because there's all these rumors and maybe that's the house you should be hanging out in because that might be the coolest guy in the neighborhood or the most interesting or the one with the most to learn from. And I, I like that part of that.
1: And I think, like I said, as I'm not sure if I understood the connection when I was seven, but growing up, I s- saw that scene. And it's like that is a viable lesson for students who mm-hmm. have or kids who have what well, I say students because I guess I'm an older guy. <laughs> I say kids right. who have wash and think to yourself, yeah, that is does see something about wondering why is this person quieter. You know, it, it look at those around you and see what they've gone through. Everyone has their own history. And I think right. that's also a very important part. I, I do and and also, I think once again, the, the reason why I work, obviously it's not a surprise is that the kids themselves have a great connection. Um, was that connection real on set, or is the connection simply in the movie that that we're seeing?
0: No, I think uh, you know you spend enough time with people that you know you you can get along with it first, and then grow to connect with, and then be friends with. then yeah, I mean, I think it you know becomes you know an organic part of it. Sometimes it doesn't work with ensembles, and you know people just don't get along, or you know w- wavelengths don't jive. But I think we all. You know, we all kind of showed up one to do our job because we're all, you know, no matter how fun a movie looks, it's it's a professional job. And you've got to do that first and foremost, but you've got to bring some of that camaraderie to it. And I think we gelled as a group after a little bit and, you know, got through some, you know, those initial stages of, you know, figuring out how to, you, you know, manage, you know, being around this new squad, you know, for lack of better terms for the next three or four months of your life. And then also translating that onto you know your job which is putting it on the camera i just think i think it was easy with all these kids because they were all fantastic and uh, they all brought their own they all brought their own thing to the group uh whether it was their experience or what they were trying to do with the character or just you know their natural state coming through as the character you know kids don't really think too much about characters you know they're just trying to You know, kind of hold on to, you know, what you think it's supposed to be and hit your mark and say your lines and and bring more of you into that. And I think everybody did that. And then everybody, you know, created, you know, a great vibe with each other. And then that shows on screen.
1: And you did have some of the most badass scenes in the entire movie. You got to hit Wolfman with a baseball bat. I mean... As a 13 year old kid, how badass do you feel knowing that you are beating up on Wolfman? And also, you're in the classic Wolfman's Got Nard scenes. Yeah. Again, with, with the Wolfman. I mean, did you feel at the moment that you were like the coolest kid in the entire
0: world at that moment? You know, there was, yeah, probably. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was every, there was so much going on and it was so quick. And, you know, get in, get out, get this, move on to the next thing because, be, you know, next he's blowing up or something. And, you know, it's just fascinating to be a part of that. You know, you always like to do your own stunts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I got to do a couple. And I got to do a couple. So it's good.
1: And I mean, and it's kind of funny watching, like knowing now the Wolfman's got Nard scene. It, once again, is one of the most famous scenes, in my opinion, especially in the genre of any kind of 80s or kids group movie. Did, did you did it feel at the moment that was one of the funniest uh, scenes? In like, did you guys crack up doing it?
0: No, I don't know. I think we just, we didn't know what it was going to be because no one knows that's going to end up being uh, literally, you know, horror genre iconography. And it is, you know, I'm not titling it that other people have said that it's one of the most famous lines in a monster movie. And, you know, that's why that's the only title for the documentary. And, you know, it happened to be, you know, Brent's line, you know, character of Horace. And you know we're just saying it. I mean, honestly, Nards was not a word that I used in my lexicon as a kid. You know, I used nuts or nads or balls, but I don't think Wolfman's got nuts is <laughs> is is funny as Wolfman's got. Right, nards. right. It just you know, you never know. It becomes iconic. It I, I actually think you know <laughs> ironic thing. I, I think I actually asked if I could say nuts because I don't know what Nards are. And I've never heard of it. I don't, I don't sound cool saying it. And, and I think Fred was like, no, read what's on the page Um, (laughs) because you're not cool Right, right, and you're Sean. And I think that's the whole point. And uh, I'm glad I didn't, you know, I'm glad we didn't change it because look where we are today.
1: (laughs) Yeah, But I do have to ask after all these years later, after that, you know, with the movie fame, that's line coming out. How are you tired of people coming up to you and saying something along the lines of the Wolfman's Got Nards every time they, you know, is that something that's get tired of hearing?
0: Not anymore, because I made a movie with the title so they can right. say all they want to, right? <laughs> uh, you know, the more Wolfman's Got Nards, you know, shout outs, I love it. It just means that people are still out there. It was a little weird in college when someone would shout it across the quad. <laughs> you know, it was only, you know, a handful, but, you know, you didn't know it was going to be a thing back then. And then, you know, to see something as simple as, you know, a... Something you have no idea, you're just wearing a dorky shirt, you know, with, you know, hand decal iron on Stephen King rules, you know, how does that become literally a, a physical piece of cinema iconography in the horror genre? and it, it has and it's even transcended its own self there's different shirts that say other people rule and there's iterations of that and I love when people make their own that's my favorite I love when you know retailers sell it or make their own thing but when I see fans and they make their own and they're ironing it on or they're doing it with screen printing or they're hand drawing it uh, and even when they change the colors like I've seen black and white ones I've seen purple with yellow I've seen you know orange with white. I don't care what I mean it's amazing that you know people get to do that and you know as the original wearer of the original piece, that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, and by the way, let's um, see. Didn't uh, we? Guess mention your documentary. And once again, I do loved it. I got the chance to watch it. And I was so happy because it was fantastic. Great. Someone in that movie defines a cult movie as a movie that is appreciated in a way that people don't necessarily predict. And there was a debate at the end. Um, I think without going to mention whether or not monster Squad is a cult movie or not. So I'm asking you, Sean himself, is monster Squad a cult movie?
0: I've been answered this before asked this before and I try to answer it in the same way so I can <laughs> stay consistent. I-, I don't know there's a two part there's two parts here. I don't know if it's a cult movie because I think cult changes and we talk about that in the doc. but is this movie a cult classic? Yes. <laughs> but, Also, at the same time, like you growing up, not knowing it was a failure and it wasn't around and no one knew it for a while because you just thought it was this cool movie that was awesome when you saw it. It was big for you. You know, a lot of people just never understood that it was a bomb, that it would ever need to become a cult. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was just a thing. And that's not the case. So, you know, we talk about in the documentary a lot. You know, you can ask five different academics and you'll get five different answers of what cult is. we're a cult classic and then we do you know kind of a smash cut with all these people saying monster squad is not a cult it's just a classic and then other people saying it's absolutely by definition of a a cult movie and so i think that's what's great because the conversation continues
1: and i think it's fantastic that even just talking to you i can tell how much you love having done the movie and and how much you love the movie itself and I, i think it was interesting that it seems like you and ryan lambert more than anyone else has helped keep this movie alive and become a, what to reach a wider audience. And you guys even had a podcast called, I believe, Squadcast. Yeah. It was, it, how many, are you guys still doing it? How many years was that?
0: What are you doing that for? Uh, we did that for about a year. We did about, I don't know, 18 or so episodes or podcasts. Started that just because we would sit around and 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 joke around and, and talk to cool people and and just crack ourselves up and said, we should have recorded that. And then uh, my wife had been saying that for about two years, and I finally did it. And you know, we had fun. And obviously, Ryan Lambert and I doing a podcast. You're going to call it Squadcast, but you know, it wasn't about Monster Squad. It was just us, and then inviting friends that we knew on to talk about cool stuff and and random weird stuff. And we had some great guests. So that was part of, at a time where like we, I had actually uh, created a little brand with Ryan and I. It was called Ryan and Andre. We had our site, uh, we had a store, we appeared at places together, you know, we would do conventions as a duo. And, uh, you know, that led to an opportunity where I created a show that aired on Nerdist's Alpha Channel from Legendary Digital a couple years ago called Short In where we co-hosted a show where we showcased uh, short films and interviewed the filmmakers and talked about the process of, you know, making short films and getting them into festivals and stuff. So uh, I loved that little era that we did that the podcast was a part of it, you know, and then now we're so busy, you know, doing other people's podcasts and things like that at the same time. I think Squadcast was perfect for what it was. And, uh, you know, Ryan went on to go do another podcast called Dying in the Hollywood Hills with our friend Jacob Strunk. Because they can commiserate, you know, talk about music and do some other stuff and commiserate about being, you know, forty somethings in Hollywood, and, um, and you know, and Ryan's a musician, so they get to talk and do music on that podcast. So that, that's pretty rad. So I think it was a great stepping stone and everything for the fans to kind of, you know, congregate again around us for a little bit and then go, you know, and then follow all the other things that we get to do.
1: And and I think it's really cool for a lot of people to know that you and Ryan are still friends from back in the day. I mean, from the movie. You know, at this club, do you guys still also, could you keep in touch with Robbie Kiger as well? Uh,
0: I lost touch with Robbie a while ago. Like we've, you know, there's a little bit of just because he was living, I think, in Hawaii for like 20 something years. And was just sort of out of the industry. And I wasn't even living in L.A. for years. And Ryan was in San Francisco for 15 or so years. And I was in North Carolina and, and, and Las Vegas and different places, but it, 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 it's mostly been kind of the tangential contact between Ryan and I over the years, and then Ashley, and then Fred a little bit. But then we all, you know, kind of connected in 2006 and have been sort of, you know, around each other for the last 10 or 12 years because of this crazy Monster Squad resurgence, and then now the documentary.
1: So, in, so you directed in 2018. You draw, you directed the has Got Nards. Once again, a fantastic documentary. So first, what inspired the making of Wolf of the Arts? And two, why did it take so long? <laughs> I mean, it feels like it should have been like, you know, 20 years ago we, we saw.
0: <laughs> right. Well, we didn't, you know, we didn't have this resurgence and this, you know, kind of reinvigoration of, you know, worldwide of Monster Squad fandom. But it was really the stories, you know, that we would hear at these appearances and conventions and screenings and it was just these fascinating stories by the fans of why this movie being monster squad, you know, connected and impacted their lives and why it meant so much to them. And you, you keep hearing these stories and over again. And I realized that their stories were a story and that's what I wanted to tell. And, you know, about not too long after I kind of thought about doing the documentary, I ended up running into the group of guys at Pilgrim media group, Henry McComas and Wes Caldwell and Aaron Kunkel and we all sat down and we were talking about projects and we decided to team up and take this documentary idea and pitch it to the executives at Pilgrim media group. And we, you know, I, I put a deal together with them and we went into production right away and we shot and edited and locked the film in about 11 months. And we had about a six and a half month film festival run all over the world. It was fantastic. One, won a handful of awards and got great reviews through the press and all the media everywhere. And the people that watched it at these festivals loved it. And it kind of culminated in this, you know, in a giant 600 person event sold out thing at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood during beyond fest. And that kind of, you know, wrapped up our awesome festival run. And then, you know, we thought we would have a distribution deal right after, but for one or more reasons for a while, uh, it just, it, it took a while, you know, this is the movie industry. And we ended up, you know, having a deal that ended up falling through. So we had about a six month gap there that we thought we were doing it somewhere else or with someone else that was going to distribute it. And then that didn't happen. And, you know, we, you know, we ended up getting back in the room with our friends at Gravitas Ventures and, you know, putting something together and they, you know, we got the deal done quick enough to where the window, the windowing of it was awesome. And it, you know, opens, you know, October 27th, you know, releases op- October 27th on VOD. And it's already been going gangbusters on iTunes pre-orders um, now and Amazon Blu-ray DVD pre-orders. You know, we were number one in three categories for a couple days on amazon which is crazy and that wasn't even within an amazon announcement that's just the fans found it and just went nuts but october 27th is you know the big day it'll you know be open and whatever your vod platform of choice is you know itunes amazon you know local cable i know it's on dish network if you've got that you'll be able to find it and if you can't just look at uh, you know at the squad doc on instagram or twitter uh, or the squad dot com on uh, that ancient device, the interwebs. Uh, or follow me, and you'll get all the updates and the words because you know I gotta be out there promoting this.
1: Oh yeah, very cool. And just a couple more uh, final questions. I do like say, as you mentioned, it won the audience award at the Overlook Film Festival, and it's also once again been at festivals all over the world. I, I looked at your website and how many it just listed. Are, are you know having you know you did your, you did Squadcast, you did the documentary. Are you still shocked by just how, I mean, does it, the movies keep seem, seeming bigger and bigger than you ever thought it was. Like each time you go someplace new, each time you talk to somebody else, it seems like the mod Squad is, the fan base is larger than you ever thought it was.
0: Yeah. It's not waning. It's not shrinking. It's actually growing. And that the original foundation is always there. Air and now it's being built upon and then now there's a second generation of monster squad fans and you know that's what the documentary is about and that's who it's for and that's who's in it and I think that hopefully that will just you know grab even more people you know to that you know foundation and just keep it growing and maybe this maybe monster squad is a movie that will you know never die
1: I would definitely hope not. The, the the classic movies should never die I mean monster squad on some level in my head is it's a wonderful life where once again it's a Wonderful life didn't do well when it first came out but I can't imagine a season going by where you don't see it's a wonderful life on TV. Right. And monster squad seems like one of those movies, especially during the Halloween season, that yeah. it wouldn't seem right not to have it somewhere available to some, to
0: someone. And, and that's where everybody has it. Now we've got great stuff like Netflix and Amazon prime and Hulu. like they, you know, they run it constantly now. So it's, that's that next evolution of, you know, watching it's a wonderful life on CBS at Christmas.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I mean, Right now, there seems to be. I've heard rumors recently of remakes of the Monster Squad being developed, either remakes or sometimes continuations. As someone who's been in the original, do you think Monster Squad is something that can be remade, or could be continued, or how do, how do you feel about that as a concept? Because some things well, seem think, to be I think holy. we've seen.
0: Yeah, I think we've seen some kind of like reinventions of it. You know, you know, inspired by or you know, direct kind of lifts. you know, some great stuff and, and, you know, like running parallel with it. But to completely remake it now, you couldn't make it the same. You couldn't have the same aspects of it because you're just not allowed to. And it wouldn't land right. I think if you're going to try that, just make a different movie and don't make it a remake of Monster Squad. But, you know, you know, a sequel you can get away with. And, you know, there's more stories to tell, whether it's prior you know you know we're in this fascinating time of prequels now it's like why don't we go and talk about what happened with dracula walking around in the 50s or something or right right right, right. 1920s uh, or or even after you know it's been 30 something years i think something else has happened either to those characters or somebody else or you know maybe there's another story out there i think those are better ideas than 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 reboots or reimaginings because i think the reimaginings we've seen because it was so iconic at a time for the filmmakers that are making stuff now. We've seen it. You know, a lot of people, you know, talk about things like Super 8 or Stranger Things and stuff stuff like that, which I think those are the, you know, we don't need a reboot of something. Like, you don't want to make, you don't want to remake It's a Wonderful Life. You don't want to remake, you know, I I mean, they, they remade, you're not going to remake Smoking the Bandit. Right, <laughs> you're right, not right, going right. to remake Casablanca, which I hold, you know, kind of in the same category. There. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you're just, movies that are s- kind of iconic, like, look, I like remakes of like, the Day the Earth Stood Still, I liked Scott Derrickson's version of that. I, I dig that movie. But the original one's amazing. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't dampen the other one. If you're gonna remake something, don't dishonor the first one, you know, improve it. You know, make the conversation include that. But that's where sequels and prequels and continuing stories, you know, are, are better for something that's iconic, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and I must admit, I don't know everyone appreciates as, as as how much Stranger Things is sort of like the spiritual child of Monster Squad from that generate i mean it feels more connected to that than a lot of the movies like even Goonies back then because of the tone
0: i, I think so cuz it's a little dark it's it's real it's authentic it's dealing with real people and you know in a real in, you know you know any town usa type of feel yeah you know and it, it's up to the writers in the room you know what influences them and what tones and themes and inspirations and and pulls that they're bringing from their youth and you know their you know film archives that they want to put on the screen of the stuff that they're getting to make and i think that's what's cool about being part of something like monster squad
1: yeah and i must admit, as a fan i do w- would love to see a continuation because you think if there's dracula Wolfman, and frankenstein what else is out there in their world that world is so open to new story that you guys gave us and you gave us Forty years to imagine what could be there. It would be, late, not, it'd be great if you guys just were able to continue it and you do know, something I don't,
0: else. I don't disagree, and I think there are some cool stories. We've talked about some cool stories, and uh, you know be, that'd be really neat to uh, you know to, to see come to pass.
1: Well, like I said, I I'm a huge fan of Monster Squad. The documentary Wolfman Got Nards was fantastic. I could feel the love of the fans in that one. I could feel the love of the people behind the camera in that one, and I highly recommend it to all our listeners. Check out Wolfman Got Nards, October twenty seventh. And uh, once again, uh, where can they find it on October 27th?
0: On your, you know, your favorite VOD provider platform, you know, cable stations, you know, your uh, cable providers, your uh, ISP ISP providers, iTunes, Amazon, Dish Network. Um, You can order the Blu-ray on Amazon if you want to, or the DVD. Just search wherever your local VOD, where you get your rentals and your digital downloads. And if you want physical, you can order the Blu-ray as well. That'd be amazing.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Gower, for talking to us. You were fantastic. Um, you were fantastic as Sean. And I thank you so much for helping us have Monster Squad in our world right now.
0: I appreciate it. I hope you all enjoy it, too. And I think you brought up a great, you know, another thing about the connection and the fandom there that the, you know, the admiration and the impact and the love for Monster Squad even comes through on camera, which are the people that were running. It. And that's absolutely true with my crew, you know, led by my man, Henry McComas. And Wes Caldwell and Aaron, all those guys, they, they were fans coming into it and they got to make a documentary. So it was a pleasure and almost easy to make this doc with those guys.
1: Well, thank you so much, sir.
3: And we're back. We are back. So what did you, uh, when was the first time you saw Monster Squad? How old were you? I was probably like 9 or 10. Or probably, I mean, i 87 when it came out, and I was I was 5 when that happened. So I, I might have seen it earlier, but I don't remember seeing it until like the early 90s, you know, when yeah. I saw it again on VHS.
2: But that's a perfect time to see it, 9, 10 years old.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was great.
2: Because at 9 you know or Shane 10. Block wrote that? Yeah,
3: I did know that. I did know that. He was a co-writer on, on the screenplay of that with Fred Decker. That's pretty cool. That guy has wrote, written a lot. Uh, yeah, tons of stuff. You
2: know, he was in... Predator. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool. But yeah, dude, the first time I watched that was on, I didn't see it in the theater. I had to wait for it to come out on video. Um, there's no way my mother would have let me go see that in the theater <laughs> or if she had known, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but Not allowed. Yeah. But I went and saw it at somebody's, I can't remember who it was. I think it was my sister's boyfriend's um, family house. I think I watched it there for the first time, and it was uh, a lot of fun. You know, I did. I had a lot of fun with that movie. I thought it. I loved that movie, and then I've seen it like a bunch of times since. I mean, does it hold up to today's stuff? No, you know. But if you just put yourself back in that mindset, then it's a lot of fun. And the cool thing about it is that it's just it's super cheesy, you know. But it's kind of like to me, it feels like the the beginning of Goosebumps. You know what right. I mean? You, like, that's, that's like, like a full on goosebump style
3: thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it is. It really is. Yeah. So, it's, it, it, I don't know. I think it does hold up. I mean, special effects don't hold up, obviously, because right. special effects from 87 to now totally changed. But, I mean, the movie itself still holds up because it's still funny. It's still, I don't know. When, when's, when's the last time you watched it?
2: About three years ago.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably about the same three or four years ago is for me, too. And it's, I mean, I don't know. I think my, I think I watch it with my kids, and maybe I'll watch it with them this 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 month because it's, it's you know it's Halloween, Halloween month and yeah. But uh, I mean, I think it still holds up as far as a, a fun film to watch.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So,
3: do you, <laughs> what was the,
2: what I was going to ask you was um, I'm like losing train of thought. I'm buying a house, so people know, and so my <laughs> my mind is all on that, and uh, but I'm just I'm, oh. <laughs> Do you think that this movie should either one have a reboot, two just get a sequel or three just
3: left alone um actually, I can see this one I can see either a reboot or or a remake or sorry a reboot or a sequel being really good for this one. A, a reboot um because it'd be good to see this type of movie done in modern day special effects, you know with the same with the same kind of theme of kids, yeah. Because if you, if you do a sequel, it's going to be adults, right? It's going to change it. Well, no, you don't be have to adults. Or, they could I mean, have or their, a new set of kids. They could be
2: their their kids, you know. And they could yeah, be like their yeah. kids are like hiding it from their parents because they don't think they'd believe them. And then at the at the end, you know, near like three quarters of the way of the movie, you're like, we went through this, this you know, thirty three years ago, and they'd be like, oh my god, right. you know, something like you know something stupid like that.
3: Yeah, that'd be cool too. I mean, either, either way, I, I'd I'd like to see a new one. It'd be fun.
2: I would love to see a new one. I. I would love to see any movie that has Dracula and Frankenstein's monster and Wolfman and, you know, and the, the creature from the black lagoon <laughs> and the mummy all together in one movie. I mean, that's just, that's just a lot of fun.
3: Yeah. And especially done, done from a kid's point of view too. It makes it fun.
2: Yeah. Because it's scary to them. Right. Right. You know, to an adult, it's like, man, that's fake. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's scary, man. What are you talk about? Totally yeah, scary. It's totally scary.
2: I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to watch this documentary though, because I, I yeah, absolutely yeah. did love this movie. I actually still love this movie. And
3: uh, uh, you've you've made that quote on the show multiple times.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because well, it's well, it's ours. one of the movies from the '80s to me that really stuck with me more than other ones. Like, yeah. If you if you took if you went back in time to the 13 year old me in 1987, I would have preferred Monster Squad. Over the Goonies. Yeah. yeah. Just because yeah. I liked it. Because it was, to me, it was more fun. I always loved Dracula and Frankenstein's Monsters. I watched those movies when I was a kid, the old, you know, the 1920s versions and the 1930s versions and stuff. I loved that stuff. And so when they had it all together, it was really, it was a lot of fun, you know? And the Goonies was fun, don't get me wrong. And the Goonies is different because it's, I don't know, it's it's just a different movie. I mean they're yeah. kind of the same, the fact that it's this you know, brat pack of kids. But that's really where the right. similarities end. You know?
3: But right. the plots are different. I mean The plots are different and
2: everything. I don't know. I just I just really I don't know, for some reason that movie really spoke to me because I always loved the the supernatural and the and the monster movies and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's why I like it so much.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I mean Again, like you said before, a, a movie with Frankenstein and Dracula in that you can't, minute. You can't go wrong. I mean, it's just exactly. going to be fun.
2: All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that interview. I know I did. Yeah. And if you did, you should really go back to SpoilerVerse.com and check out our back issues.
3: There's tons of cool stuff in there. So much from us and so much from all the other shows on our network. And there's so many articles and previews and reviews and stuff here to read. Go go read some stuff. Go make some comments. Go uh, like and subscribe to all the fun stuff that's up there. And uh, while you're there, there's a store link. Click on that. Go there. Get a t-shirt, a hoodie, a face mask, something. Look fly as hell. Help us out and uh, help, uh, you know, the dollar or two of thing you buy goes to help support this, the site and the shows here. There you go.
2: All right, guys. We're out of here. But don't forget, in an Oceans of Podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And what Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mic. Read more. I don't know why it makes me laugh every time
3: you say fine. This <laughs> <laughs> can't say character. Fine. <laughs> I love it.